Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so happy to be sitting here across from Kevin Wilson, who I've I've been a fan of yours since your debut novel. Um, Kevin Wilson is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Family Fang, Perfect Little World, and Nothing to See Here, which is his latest. His fiction has appeared in Plowshares, Tin House, One Story, A Public Space, and elsewhere. He lives in Sewanee, Tennessee with his wife, the poet Leanne Couch, and his sons, Griff and Patch. And he is an associate professor in the English department at the University of the South. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're in town from Tennessee for a couple of days. Yeah, to the big city. To the big city. (laughs) I'm so so happy that you're here. One of the questions I get a lot in terms of book recommendations is, give me a book or an author who's actually funny, not like in a wry, sardonic way, like actually, actually will make me laugh. And I I always say you. Oh, that's really kind. That means a lot um, because that's... That's usually what I'm looking for in a book, too, is, is I love those authors that can manage humor in that way. Um, I feel like it's a really kind of special talent. It, it is, and you, you do it beautifully. And it, and it's not like you're writing things that don't – I mean, the emotional depth in in, in Nothing to See Here is, is, is amazing, too. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I don't – I just don't have much confidence in myself as a, as a serious writer, and so – when I'm dealing with serious issues, like my way into it is lightness, right? So mm-hmm. if I can figure out how to make it kind of silly at first, once I get comfortable with it, then I can turn the light down, right? And get darker and darker as I go. And I think that the maybe the reader might trust me a little better because I'm yeah. kind of slowly dimming it um, than if I tried to be serious from the start, which I'm just not good at. <laughs> well, thank goodness, because we need more writers like you. <laughs> so in this latest book, it's it's high concept, do you, do you want to explain a little Sure. Bit? Yeah. It's it's about this woman, Lillian, who's um, in her 30s. Um, she had shown promise when she was young and, <laughs> and things did not work out the way she had hoped maybe. Um, and she has a friend, Madison, and things did work out the way she had hoped. Yes. And so they come back together after a long time of not seeing each other so that Lillian can take care of the stepchildren of Madison, these two twins, Roland and Bessie. And their father is a a senator who's hoping to someday become president. That's Madison's new husband. And these kids, their their affliction, which they have, is that when they get agitated, they spontaneously combust. They burst into flames. So it's Lillian's job to be a nanny for these two kids. And and make sure that they um, keep cool. Yeah, yeah, to try to manage the damage as much as possible. (laughs) And spontaneous combustion – feels like the perfect metaphor for so many different things. Yeah. What spontaneous combustion definitely makes sense to me with my kids. Um, Yeah. A child that might burst into flames. I I hope it's not just my children. That's, (laughs) that seems entirely plausible to me when they, when they get to that state. Sure. And, and I love how Lillian, you know, she's, she's a lay person. She's, she's not a mother. Um, but she comes up with a list of different things that they could try to calm them. And yeah. Then, and anyone, I mean, I feel like I just have a dog and I, I feel like I've considered this list. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think for me, that was like one of the early stages of figuring out the book was I was like, I have children that burst into flames. What would you do in the real world if that were possible? And so Lillian's list, which is stuff like yoga, right, <laughs> uh, uh, therapy, th- that's how I started. I was like, what, what realistically would you do um, to, to save these children? 
So that that her list is my list at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I love the the rules around um the fires that they they burst into because um the stakes are a little less high <laughs> because they can't be harmed. Right. It was I think a lot of times I write about stuff that um can be kind of really strange and unsettling. Yeah. And so my goal always is to figure out how to turn that into something that you can survive, right? To me, yeah. that's the most important thing. Oh. And so I knew when the kids were going to burst into flames, I didn't want them to be scarred by it. I wanted yeah. it to be to be impervious. And, and so that's how I can kind of work through that story is like, I know I'm going to keep them alive, right? Even right. if this happens, they're not going to get hurt in that way. They may hurt other people or burn stuff down, mm-hmm. but it was important to me that they survive it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it makes it so much more pleasurable to read <laughs> yeah. if you don't have to worry about uh, their well-being all the time or their physical well-being all the time. I yeah. They have a lot to be mad about. Yes. Yeah. They've, <laughs> they've not been treated well. Um, they, they've been treated poorly by the people who are ostensibly supposed to take care of them, their mother and their father. Their father abandoned them and their mother – you know, mentally was incapable of kind of taking care of them on her own. And so these children haven't gotten what they've needed, you know, which is is just on a surface level, surface level, they just need attention. They need right. someone to care about them. Sure. And so Lillian is a woman who doesn't care about anything. Yeah. Um, and so it's that odd match of of how is she going to protect them? Um, and and it's important that she protect them because they've not been protected their entire lives. So this is her shot, right? This is her yeah. shot to to save them. And and Lillian is so great because, yeah, she is very judgmental, but she has every right to be. <laughs> basically, yeah. yeah, I loved I, so much of my anger doesn't feel righteous in any way, shape, or form. It's so <laughs> ridiculous. So for me, it was really lovely to have Lillian because I believe that her anger is 100% righteous. And so it was fun to play with the character where I was like, no, she is 100% right. Yeah. I mean, she says at at one point, I didn't like men all that much, found them tiring. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, thank you, Kevin. (laughs) I believe that. I buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Thank you. (laughs) And I also... Love this book because I, I guess in the same way that the fire can't harm them, Lillian is is a dark person. Um, but I'm, I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say that it's very clear that she takes to these children right mm-hmm. away, and like so, we don't have that conflict to worry about right. when we're when we're getting to know them. Yeah, and. And that was – I mean that's that's the crux of the plot, right? Let Lillian kind of finding it within herself. Can she take care of these kids? And for me when I wrote the story, I wanted – it was really difficult because I, what I didn't want the book to be was, oh, if you have children, it will solve all your problems or right. the, caring for a child is this transformative experience. To me, it was really important that those aren't Lillian's kids in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to explore was what does it mean to protect anyone in the world? Yeah. What does it mean to make yourself vulnerable in order to protect people that that need help more than you do. Um, so I didn't want it to be like, have kids and your life will be better and you'll right. learn responsibility. It's, it's learn not that at all. I, I would advise everybody <laughs> against that for the most part. Um, so I wanted it to be different than that. It's not just about parenthood for me. Sure. Um, and I do – I do think the metaphor also expen- extends, though, to to disabilities of of all sorts, um, and, and thinking about the ways, the practical ways in which our world isn't equipped to handle any kind of disability. Yeah, I mean, in 
I, I think because because I struggle with mental illness and mm-hmm. and one of the things that I know is that one of the ways that I've survived it is because I've had support and right. without that I don't think I would have and so thinking about these kids again and again where we have people in vulnerable states and um, and there's really nothing in place to protect them and that's terrifying to me yeah. and not just because I'm a parent it's terrifying to me that we live in a world where a lot of people are not protected. So this is my little fairy tale. This is yeah. this this woman, this this nanny comes in and saves them like Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. That's what I needed in my brain after the way the world has has worked these past couple of years. Absolutely. And and I do love that the that there is the full fairy tale aspect of it. Like even um before she meets the kids, Lillian goes and reunites with Madison, who did a really shitty thing to her in high school, but they've remained friends. And there's a scene where they go shopping for supplies. Yeah. And it's kind of like I can picture the movie version. It's like a montage with a <laughs> fun soundtrack. Yeah. It's it's one of those moments for Lillian. I think it's her first real understanding that her life is going to change, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you could walk into a store and and nothing matters, right? right. To Madison, nothing matters. And, and Lillian is like, I've got to learn to pretend that nothing matters if I'm going to survive. Right. Uh, which I haven't figured out how to do. <laughs> no. Yeah. Few of us have. What a pr- privilege it is to have nothing matter, to be able to walk into that store and be like, yeah, I'll take 10 of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was fun to write Madison sometimes because I didn't have to think too deeply about mm-hmm. like, that's what you would do. If you had unlimited wealth, you would do exactly this. And it was re- really easy to make that kind of chart, the navigation of that of that character. And and I do think uh, Lillian is a great stand-in for most of us yeah. um, in terms of class rage, yeah. <laughs> um, which, again, in the past couple of years, for me anyway, I'm just going to speak for myself. Yeah. I've been getting very angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, again, it was cathartic to write Lillian because I'm, I don't have a spine, you know what I mean? I, I think the world <laughs> is messed up, but it's hard for me to put myself out there. And so it was nice to have Lillian who really can recognize immediately where things are messed up, right? Yes. Where, where, and 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 she gets some pleasure out of being able to say, like, this is absurd, um, yes. right? That there's there's a real power in people do not want to hear that their lives are absurd, no matter how absurd they are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and and even Jasper, mm-hmm. it, who is uh, Madison's husband, embodies so much of of the things that make me angry today, both in class and in politics. Right. Yeah. It was because it's, again, I I don't think of myself as a political writer and I know that that's kind of a privileged position. Right. And, and then I think what I, what I finally realized was like, I I think I am. I think it's just the way I'm going to come at it. And Jasper for me was, again, everything to think about with these past few years and maybe the the world at large was, is that, he believes that he's a good person. He believes that he's looking out for his constituents. But what I see again and again with people in power is um, what's so frustrating is I think people in power find um, weakness or vulnerability to be um, um, disgusting, right? They don't want to be around it or be reminded of it. And I think Jasper believes he's a good person, but he simply cannot understand what it means to be in need, right? And and that somebody does makes him upset. Um, I can't figure that out. And even uh, the idea that these kids, Bessie and Roland, are are rich. They are also rich, but um, there are things that um, that can't solve. Right. Yeah, they're vulnerable in a way that 
to him, you know, it's not he could give them all the money in the world and they'd still be vulnerable in this mm-hmm. specific way. And that I think that really angers him. Yeah. Yeah. I also along the lines of, of class rage, I really like what you had to say about ambition in the novel. <laughs> Particularly women's ambition, because it's uh, it seems pretty gendered in the way you describe it. Anyway, yeah. So I mean, Madison is the the privileged friend, um, but even within her family, she's the one daughter, and all the boys are are beloved. And even though they're alcoholics and get divorced all the time, <laughs> she's never thought to be someone who has serious aspirations. And so, even with her, even though I think in a lot of ways um, she does bad stuff. I, I fully was on board with her desire to gain whatever power that she could get in the world. And if it meant that sometimes she was going to have to kind of adjust her morals, right. I understood her way more than sure. I understood Jasper. Sure. Because uh, why would he need to adjust his morals in any way, shape, or form? He has he everything. Just do... But Madison, I grew more and more tender toward because I it made sense to me. And Lillian, too, you know, she talks a lot about that. She knew she wasn't destined for this stuff, this kind of privilege, but if she was careful, she could steal it, right? Yes, and I love I that, love idea. that I idea. I think for me, I, I understood that too. Like somebody's going to release, relax their grip on it and I'll take it. And and that was kind of thrilling. I, I, I love that character. That um, <laughs> That is the dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take it, Matt Power. <laughs> um, I also just love that so much of your writing has been about family dynamics in various ways. Yeah. I th- well, that's just – I think from the get-go, I figured out what my thing was, what my obsession was. And mm. and I'm a – you know, I, I know it's – I don't know what that sounds like, but I, I, I am, to my mind, a domestic writer. I'm, I'm, what I care about is the home, mm-hmm. how the home is made and how we live in it and how we expand it to allow other people into it. A lot of my stories, characters don't get to leave the house because I'm afraid of it. You know, I want <laughs> oh, to stay sure. in that home. I want to. I don't ever want them to leave. And I, I think writers like Shirley Jackson, like right. um, we have always lived in the castle, which the yeah. ending is supposed to be just terrifying and awful. To me, I feel comfort. Oh, I'm no. like, oh yeah, it's just the two of them in that space. And um, so I'm always trying to figure out like how can I make my story smaller, right? How can I mm. how can I like never leave a room? Um, that's just where I think my obsessions thrive because family dynamics I think are generally combustible because they're under pressure because yes. you're under the same roof. And, yes. and that's what I'll always write about because when I was a kid, I couldn't get over the weirdness of having been born into a family, right? I couldn't believe <laughs> yes. that that these people had made me. And then as I became a parent – it became strange to know that I had made someone and then there was that weirdness of, oh, they're they're becoming their own person and, and that's a strange sensation. So I think maybe there was a point if I didn't have kids where I'd stop thinking about family, but it's just completely become redefined. So I was like, oh, there's mm, all this right. all this extra stuff I can talk about now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if, if you went from your first novel being uh, more balanced between the parents and the children. Yeah. And the, the second novel which is, is a <sighs> – how how did you describe it? It's a uh, utopian fantasy. Yeah, it's an experimental commune, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and again, um, my editor he mentioned this with this book where he was like, you know, a lot of times if you have parental characters in your books, uh, you do not give them the benefit of the doubt or much depth. Like they're always very bad. And he's like, why is that? And I'm like, well, I think maybe I just think. If you're a child, you're blameless and you are blameless mm. until the moment you have a kid and then you're a cop, right? Like, and then, 
<laughs> all bets are off. Like I think um, that that transition is weird, where you've always thought of yourself as made by someone, and now you're in that new role. And the minute you make somebody else, it's on you, right? And, right. Um, so I think I don't think much of parents in my stories because <laughs> I'm like, God, why did you do this to this kid? And the kid to me is is perfect. Right. Yeah. Bessie and Roland and also um, Madison's son, Timothy. Yeah. I, I love how upon meeting Timothy, even though he's supposed to be the, the, the rich kid. Yeah. You and Lillian celebrate him being a complete weirdo. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> that's one of the lucky things about having the, my two sons is they have all these friends and you're around them. You yeah. see, the, you just, you're just surrounded by kids all the time and you realize just how deeply and uniquely strange each one of them is. <laughs> They're so bizarre and weird. And I love watching them because their personalities are already kind of distinct, but because they're not fully formed, the weirdness seeps out so much more easily. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I think all kids are weird. I'm beginning to realize yeah. they're all very bizarre. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you've got some good material. <laughs> yeah. <on> that. <laughs> Tell me what you've been reading lately. Oh, well, it was, um, this book is a very short novel, right? Yeah. And I knew going into it because Perfect Little World with that huge commune was so long. Right. It was so difficult to, to write it. It was, and so I said, I want this to be short, really mm -hmm. short. And so I just started reading models of short novels. Oh. And, and what I read was like um, was like Sarah Levine's Treasure Island oh, or yeah. Katie Kitamura's uh, Separation. I was, was like, so God, how do they do this? How can they make the book so small? And so even after I finished the book where I was like, God, it's just so great to be able to move so quickly through the narrative, I still find myself kind of drawn to those shorter mm -hmm. novels. And so um, the three that I've really loved that I've read um, are Mary Miller's Biloxi. Like, yes. Um, just every she she to my mind is the best contemporary Southern writer. I don't think anyone mm. can touch her. Um, it's just she gets the South perfectly it, the way that it is now, right? Um, so I love that book, and great. it was a great short kind of brief novel, very funny. And then Marcy Dermansky's very nice, which yes. again is also funny, odd, strange. I mean, these mm -hmm. are the books that I gravitate to, where people are very deeply weird. Um, and then the last one is a novel that is coming out next year yeah. by a writer named Lee Connell, and it's called The Party Upstairs. Ooh. And uh, it all is set in New York, and it's the daughter of a super um, who's now oh, an adult. Fun. And it's very much about class and gender. Of of it's all inside this building on one day, um, and she's moved back home with her family who live in the basement, and um. It's just virtuosic. Like her, her writing, I, I can't get enough of it. Ooh. All right. I'm going to check that out. Oh, good. Um, what other writers make you laugh? And this is off the cuff. So if, if you can't think of anything. No. I, I mean, Mary Miller makes me laugh a lot. I think she's incredibly funny. George Saunders sure. makes me laugh. Yeah. Um, I was just reading a line from Sea Oak to my students uh, two weeks ago. And I could, and I've read that line out loud maybe twenty times, and I couldn't get through it without without laughing. Without laughing. Like, and and they thought I was insane. Do you remember? Yeah, it? it's Co. I don't remember the full line, but it's just um, the narrator is thinking about how his girlfriend in high school broke up with him, and it's this high flowery language of like, "I'm sorry, our life is moving on two different paths," and you know, "I still love you," blah blah blah. And then the end is like, "Plus, I can't believe that your uncle peed in the in the dishwasher like that." And that. <laughs> That weird ending of that informality right. makes me lose it every time. <laughs> um, and, you know, Shirley Jackson, who is my writer, I mean, she's my touchstone in yeah. so many ways. She is the writer that I, I most fully connect to. Um, but her sense of humor, 
I, I love um, mm-hmm. because it's so married to darkness. And her nonfiction work, Life Among the Savages, is just just as funny, funny. as it can be. It's so smart. Um, so sometimes I think the writers that I like, they're funny, but they marry it to something stranger, right? right. And so for me, those are the ones I kind of gravitate to. I love it. Yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.